0: You consider yourself to be a person of the grass, which is to say, a modern-day cowboy. Your assignment? To travel halfway across the world to teach cowboy skills to people in Russia and Kazakhstan. It might sound like a surreal and foreign quest, but as you immerse yourself in life on the steppe, you find yourself among absolute kindred spirits. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories. He didn't
1: miss a beat, he didn't bat an eyelash that I was an American. He just saw me as a traveling horseman. And he himself is one, having migrated across the country from the south into the into the middle part of the steppe, where he could find land where it was cheap. So he too knew what it was like to be a traveller. And then once we got horseback, it was just synergy. We could just ride and ride. I just kinda blinked my eyes and Sometimes I have to remind myself I wasn't just riding across Montana
0: with another buddy. This week, a calf named Ryan, horse wrestling, and a train journey the length of the globe. Join us on a journey from the plains of the American West to the steppes of Russia and Kazakhstan and the making of Cowboy Comrades. It's 2233. Mm-hmm. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all.
1: These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. Oh, that's
0: what we call cultural exchange.
1: My name is Ryan Bell, I'm from Washington State. I was a Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellow in 2015 and 2016. That grant took me to Russia and Kazakhstan for a reporting project uh, that I've really been working on since 2010. I call my project Comrade Cowboys. It's a reported story about the interaction between American ranchers and cowboys who are helping rebuild agriculture in the post-Soviet nations of Russia and Kazakhstan. I began in 2010 as a cowboy journalist traveling with one of the first herds of cattle that were taken from the United States to a defunct collective farm in Russia. I was part of a team of Well, all told about 10 cowboys who went over and back periodically for the period of a year. Our job was to see the cattle transplanted onto the Russian steppes to help build the ranch, fencing and all, and to train a group of local villagers in the cowboy trade. The reason to go to all that trouble was because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, collective farming just went kaput and meat production ground to a halt. The cattle population in Russia alone, gosh, it dropped by almost 50%. So the Russian Federation launched a program called the Food Security Doctrine with the aim of becoming food secure, a real admirable effort. And this came during a period of time that was interesting between the U.S. and Russia. It was the reset, vibes were good, the idea of plane loads of cattle and chip loads of cattle and cowboys showing up. It felt really warm. It was neat. <music> I reported on that for a cowboy magazine back in the U.S., uh, it was a it was a series called Comrade Cowboys. It was you know, the ranchers and cowboys I knew in Montana and Colorado and Wyoming. They just ate it up. They loved it. This idea of almost time travel back to a time when the range was unfenced and things felt wild and and more that. know the cow is is native to the steppe the russian cossack is a revered figure in the west like they're 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 cowboy brothers and sisters and it's it's you know you just feel a kinship so to get to travel over there and play cowboy with with the russians you know everybody wanted to go do that these were tough jobs to get As a year or two went by, after I'd come home, I kept thinking about that ranch and the baby cattle that we helped calve that winter and spring, wondering how they were doing. How were the the villagers that we taught how to cowboy, how were they holding up? It's not an easy job. And for context, I'm I'm a born-again cowboy. My grandpas were cowboys, but I was raised by baby boomers in the city. So when I had my chance after, after graduating from college with a history degree, I ended up working as a cowboy in Argentina. That was my first taste of the saddle. And it was the first time I realized that there's cowboys all over the world. They go by different names, but there's a kinship of the people of the grass. That experience proved to be great training for traveling to a place like Russia, where we did face serious hardships and significant cultural clashes. Still, what happened to the cattle? How did that ranch do? As a journalist, I really wanted, I needed to answer that question. This was a grand experiment. So as I was looking at the different programs, that was the second year they were offering the Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship. And I thought, well, (laughs) I can go back as a journalist. this fellowship the national geographic editors instantaneously recognized this for this stunning moment in history that it was and fully embraced my reporting so i got the fellowship one of five people out of several hundred candidates i when i told my wife i got it she goes now why didn't you apply to go somewhere warm As I was getting ready to go, we got some pre-training from the National Geographic editors and I was working with a photo editor and she was asking like, what does this look like? You know, What do the Russians look like? And you know, picturing big furry hats and long robes and having been there already, knowing that actually they all dress in camouflage. They all dress in camouflage and black combat boots. That's a question I never asked. Why are you guys all dressed in camel? Like, do you just miss your military days? And there's a little bit of that, but there was more. Military clothing, it's a cheap way to clothe yourself. And these are individuals for whom they haven't had paying jobs for who knows how long. I spoke to one man who, an older man, who hasn't had a paying job since the collective farm shut down in 1990. I also found through my research as a historian, as a history major, I couldn't help but dig into what the interaction has been like between Americans and Russians in agriculture for this whole time. And I found some stunning, stunning connections where there's been a transfer of customs between Russians and Americans going back 150 years. Even some recent examples in the height of the Cold War, the one that makes me laugh is rhinestones, rhinestone fashion. It was designed by a Russian émigré who came to the United States, and he was hired to make costumes that would be able to show off movement in black and white television. John Wayne, his favorite composer, was a Russian émigré. Many of the most Famous, iconic Western songs, Uh, Red River, uh, Bonanza Bonanza, draws on musical traditions of Slavic cultures. We think of that as cowboy, cowboy as it it gets. So as I got to know some of these Russians and they would talk to me about my clothing, I would bring that up like this, this all kind of comes from here, which they loved. That gave him a great sense of pride. It broke down that barrier of, oh, you're a cowboy. You got a hat on. You've got jeans with, you know, curly Q embroidery on it. You've got, I don't wear rhinestones, but if I were wearing rhinestones, uh, you know, you've got all of this otherness. And in those discussions, to realize that, no, in fact, that was a handoff. But it makes you realize that this interaction is one that goes back a long time, somewhat timeless. So there I was, flying back to Russia five years later. I had a quest. I wanted to find the first baby calf that was born that winter in 2010. The veterinarian had nicknamed it Ryan. (laughs) So (laughs) I had a namesake calf somewhere in Russia, and darn it, I wanted to find that calf. cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw, a plowing through the ragged skies, and up a cloudy draw. In the air. And I knew that there was a good chance that perhaps this calf had entered the food chain and, and had long since become a hamburger, because that is the reality of what this was about. This was about feeding people. In fact, no, it didn't become a hamburger. It probably became uh, meatballs inside a beef borscht or something of the local cuisine. Still, I wanted to know what path it had traveled. A bowl of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky For he saw the riders coming home. And he heard their mournful cry. So I landed back at the old ranch where a lot of the guys I had worked with were no longer there. There'd been significant turnover. The work is hard and it's not uncommon on American ranches to see turnover. So that alone didn't surprise me. What was a little surprising was that because of that turnover, the new generation of workers on that farm, on that ranch, didn't practice the cowboy trades, the riding horses to gather the cattle, the things that we had taught that first class of Russian cowboy. And instead, they had resorted to simple methods of doing their job. They were using tractors to round up the cattle, (laughs) driving these big huge tractors all over muddy pastures with grain inside the tractor because the cattle would follow it and that's you know we spent a day rounding up 250 head two cowboys could do that with two horses and you would be done i fell that down and that that was hard to realize ride, trying to catch the devil's herd across these endless skies. Give me It made me want to go find those guys I trained. I wanted to go find them. Like, why did you leave? What what led you to leave? And is there any hope that you'll come back? Because this place needs you. Without you around, they're using tractors around cattle. My goodness. So I went and found one of the guys I'd worked with, a really talented young man. His story was interesting. Our first winner, he was a security guard because the ranch had to be gated. They were paranoid somebody would come keep, steal these cattle. This young man and his dad were the security guards, and he kept leaving his post. In the middle of the night, we'd be at the barn because uh, cattle tend to give birth just as the sun's going down because they know it could be difficult for you. <laughs> No, not because of that. It's actually, uh, it's biological. So during calving season, you kind of have to stay up all night long. So we'd be in the barn with just rows of baby calves, as cute as can be, slick, being licked off by their moms, and just just a real nice moment. It's cold and snowy outside, but warm and steamy in the barn, and you can smell the hay, and it just feels like you're inside of a a cow nursery. And this, this security guard, he kept coming he would leave his post, and his little head would pop into the barn. And the cowboys would be like, who's guarding the gate? And we were joking because nobody needed to guard the gate. Who were we kidding? Like the rancher joked, like, good luck, whoever's gonna try to steal these cattle. I, we could make a reality show out of that. Like, these are not gonna be easy for you to steal. Like, you can just run in and steal a cow. his post and he'd come hang out with us and the the Russian farm manager he considered this guy's just a terrible problem and we're like this guy wants to be around these cattle he's got a real a real fondness for it and the thing about cowboys is we love our job there's a disconnect among cowboys you know you're raising food we all eat steak we all eat hamburger but you're caring for the life and the well-being of a, of a animal. A beautiful one at that with a lot of personality. You develop a real sweetness for it. And you have to apply that to the job because they're frustrating buggers. They're going to make you mad. So it's kind of like a child. You've got to have love for it to see, t- to see yourself through that. Otherwise, they'll just drive you crazy. And that's one of the reasons I found out a lot of those first cowboys ended up quitting. was the first time we saw a guy whose heart quickened when he was around the cattle. He wanted nothing more to do that. So we lobbied, us cowboys lobbied the farm manager to assign him as a cowboy, as a cowboy in training, and we did. And he proved pretty darn talented at the job. We had to teach him how to ride a horse. Uh, We had to teach him how to use a gate. The idea of a gate in a country where there's no fences in the West, you're, you grow up around them. You grow up understanding the customs around a fence. There's cardinal rules. When you come to a gate, you leave it however you found it because somebody has it set a specific way. If it's open, it's because maybe there's cattle you don't see way far off that they want to slowly but surely trickle their way through that gate into a new pasture on their own without you needing to do a thing. Maybe that's why the gate's open. Or if it's closed, it's closed for a darn good reason. If you don't know those things, how do you know what to do with the gate? And a lot of these workers would would just shoot themselves in the foot with leaving gates open when they shouldn't. We'd be moving cattle from out of the barn and we'd go into this pasture and I'd think, oh, they finally did it right. They were herding the cattle from behind because their first instinct was hysterical. They'd jump in front of the cow, in front of the face.
0: Like,
1: no, no, no. My first Russian word I learned was quiet, 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 quiet. Which we later found out some guys thought we were basically dumb. shut up. Like, we don't want you to talk. Bad moment of translation, no quiet yourself and move them from behind. Get behind them and move them forward. You know, we have foremans in the West who yell and shout and are jumpy, and their cattle are flighty, jumpy, and hard to work with. Whereas if you work with a foreman who's got smoothness and a calmness, the cattle show that same behavior. So we're teaching them to get behind the cattle, be quiet, they finally get the idea. And we'd move them into a pasture. And then we'd watch as the cows go through the pasture to the other side and right out a gate somebody had left open (laughs) into a part of the ranch that wasn't fenced from there to the Ukraine. And the workers would just be demoralized, just demoralized. And we'd have to go get them again, spend the rest of the day, you know, fixing that mistake. Victor was one of these guys we had taught to do all of that. And more, he could lead other Russians, other villagers to do all of this, because they listened to him, they, re, they esteemed him. It was no longer an American telling them, hey, you know, this is the way we do it, Ticha, No, it's Victor saying, we do it this way. You know, no, we don't do it like it's a dairy farm. We, we do it this new way. And he was really effective at transmitting that knowledge across his peer group. So when I left after that first year, I was asking our veterinarian, she was bilingual, she was Russian, and I asked her like, why Victor? Like, why was he so much better than the others? She said, well, his last name translates as cattleman, Grovkin, and yet he he doesn't know why his last name was cattleman. He doesn't know his family history, like most people don't. He, he can't look farther back than 1917. His dad, I talked to his dad, doesn't know. Doesn't even know what his grandfather's history was. They just don't know. This region is the region of the Don Cossack, the great historical Cossack of the Russian Empire. They ruled the steppes, they were fantastic cowboys, and the Bolshevik revolution did not go well for them. It's possible that, that Victor's family descends from that and they just don't know what that lineage is. It seems to me he's just got it coded inside of his DNA an instinct for this work and a passion for it that just came back to life and he was good at it and in going to find victor i was hoping to bring the russian cowboy back to the russian ranch so i found him and he was living with his his family and his he had a new wife and they had a baby child and i think they might have had two and life had just gotten really busy for him and it was easier for him to just work in the village those are the same forces we deal with in the west this is universal On the upside there was a new farm manager and he wanted to learn how to do all things cowboy he he was embarrassed that they used tractors he says yes finally someone <laughs> you could teach us to teach us to rope teach me how to be a cowboy and he wanted to be number one i would teach him he would teach the others and we would spend the days i taught him everything because the horses were still there they hadn't been used in a year or two so they'd grown half wild. So i had to do kind of some some retraining that was a little bit western and then teach him along the way and and he picked it up by the time my visit there ended he he was doing well he was riding he had some other people riding with him they were they were doing it the cossack way the cowboy cossack way ryan the calf wasn't there (laughs) ryan the calf got sold that was kind of the plan this this ranch the plan wasn't to raise all these cows to slaughter for meat because that would be kind of pointless spend all this money bringing all these cattle over to russia and then just slaughter them right away these were breeding animals so ryan was sold as a breeding bull in a group of cattle that as far as i can tell were shipped to a buyer in kazakhstan The same situation in Russia occurred in Kazakhstan with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Farm shut down, cattle herds, sheep herds, all meat producing animals, uh, all their populations kind of diminished, so they were also importing livestock. wanted to go to Kazakhstan, Ryan proved to be a fantastic excuse to bridge and go over and see how the same thing had played out in Kazakhstan. Through this journey, I saw for the first time how diverse the Soviet Union must have been. How intermixed. You know, growing up, I grew up in Colorado Springs, which is like a military town. And it was rumored among us classmates in, in elementary school that, you know, we're the first person that gets nukes by the commies like the first missiles coming here, you know, to blow up the bases or something like we just grew up with this fear of the huge ubiquitous Russia, Soviet Union, USSR. It hadn't occurred to me that these were autonomous people and countries previous to the to the Russian Revolution. So to cross this boundary into Kazakhstan and see how quickly the culture shifted, how quickly the landscape shifted. I also knew that thanks to some recent archaeology discoveries in Kazakhstan, some of the original domesticated horses were in Kazakhstan. Pastoral traditions go way, way back in Kazakhstan. So as a, you know, a cultural cowboy, uh, it was it was like traveling back to the wellspring of my traditions. <laughs> I wasn't able to locate exactly where Ryan was sold to, but I could guess. I just knew that a batch of cattle had been sold to a specific ranch kind of in the central steppe of Kazakhstan. I followed the trail to where they had also sold some more cattle to another rancher. So kind of lily-padding between startup ranch to startup ranch, I landed at this one uh, ranch called King's Gate Ranch. It was a ranch that was started uh, under the Soviet Union. It was a big old sheep farm. And it was now being run by uh, a young man, a young rancher named Dowlet Zhaitopov. Dalit was a young man who was just cowboy crazy. He had a smartphone. He'd flip through, he'd see pictures. He he knew all about this. He traveled to the U.S., had visited ranches. He had a passion to build this ranch from the viewpoint of, of being a young ranching owner, something that could last for a really long time. Something that was immediately different in Kazakhstan once I was among people who aren't that far removed from their nomadic traditions is a level of hospitability I had seen in Argentina, I've seen in Mexico, I've seen wherever you have people of the grass. Because when you travel for long distances on a frontier, it's it's a prerequisite of just human dignity that you welcome a traveler. There's even rules in Kazakhstan, cultural rules, that you have to give food and shelter to even your enemy if they come to your door. They would willingly seek refuge in somebody of a different tribe if they needed to because you can't be caught out on the step, you'll die. And so it was a human dignity they afforded to even somebody they would war with. I think that's at the root of why Dalit was so welcoming to me. In all my travels, I'd never come into contact with the Muslim culture. What exposure I've had has been through television, sensationalized. So on the first morning on Dalit's ranch, I was in the bunk, in the bunkhouse where several, almost all, the, all of his cowboys, all of his herdsmen were, were sleeping. And I heard somebody doing prayers at like five in the morning. It woke me up. And I had like a panic reflex on, I didn't like that. It was just a knee jerk reaction. And it made me realize how conditioned I have been to this idea that that should be alarming, which is ridiculous. I grew up in a church. Uh, I have many pastors and ministers in my family. I, I sang in church choir. I've been raised in such a way that faith is never something to be taken as alarming. So that that was my response to this man praying was a sign that I had a blind spot. Also I'm on a ranch in the absolute middle of nowhere. When you're that far out there, you have to learn to get along with anybody that you are around. So I got to know this man and he was an Uzbek worker who had come to Kazakhstan. and. And in kazakhstan they're they're muslim they're a little bit more lifestyle muslim than full-on practicing and it was really only this one uzbek individual who would pray and he was super faithful about it and he was so kind and gentle and so i asked Dowlet, who was kind of my interpreter of all things kazakh and he considered himself culturally muslim I, i asked him you know some some of my biggest fears What's it like with the conflict in Syria for you guys? What's it like with the rise of the Islamic State? What's this like? And so we ended up having a conversation like you'll have on a lot of ranches where in the West where people are Christian and and many of them are are quite faithful. Many of them are not. I worked on a ranch where all the cowboys were Mormon. And we would spend Sundays um, after they'd come home from their church. And we would spend, you know, we'd have barbecues together and discussions of faith were never far behind. So here we were having one of those discussions of faith, and and I asked him, you know, what how do you remedy these these differing things? And he told me something I had never known. He told me that to a Muslim, they consider Jesus, Jesus Christ, a prophet. I didn't know that. I didn't know that he was recognized as a prophet. That created a feeling of a bridge. If you can identify a spiritual individual who's important to me as a prophet of your own. There's no reason I can't see your profits as profits of my own. It destigmatized it, and it felt freeing. A lot of the guys would ask me about rodeo. They all were fascinated by rodeo. But they also wanted to show me their equestrian games because the Kazakhs have a ton of them. And they're pretty good horsemen. They're, you know, they're born on these horses. And they've handed down some games, some sports that are just fascinating. So they wanted to teach me one of these games. I was quite interested in this game called Kokpar which I can only describe as it's like rugby, but with a, the body of a dead goat, it's incredibly brutal. They served a purpose back in who knows when as a way to train warriors. But this one man in the South wanted to make this sport accessible to visitors from out of the country. It's like, I think people might enjoy this watching this game. And I'm like, good luck with that. But to that end, he had helped devise a new league with players, with teams, with uniforms. And instead of a carcass of a dead goat, they were they had created a bag, um, like a leather bag filled with sand. And where you would have arms and legs of a goat, they had these knotted ropes. The appearance is a whole lot nicer watching this game. And he wanted me to play. come on let's 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 play we'll put on a match well this is still no matter what even though it's just this big heavy 70 pound leather bag uh you're still it's full on i grew up playing ice hockey and this is like checking hitting just but on a horseback like you are in a fight for your life and it is not easy and the gameplay there's set moves and it reminds me you throw picks like you do in basketball, and so even though I could ride just fine i was I was I was useless out there on this field, and so they stopped the game kind of partway through it, and it was it was fun, it was a good taste and and we would play again uh, several days later, but they're like, let's do something maybe maybe you can do. We'd like to have you play horse wrestling. And what this is is two horsemen holding each other. Basically try to rip the other person off of their, their horse. That's the entire game. And they handicap it. Like they put you with somebody of your own ability. And so they looked at me and then they looked at the 60-year-old guy with gold teeth. And they're like, I think you're probably his level. So I'm squaring off against grandpa. And we lock arms and the horses get it because you're sitting here trying to yank the person off of the horse. And at the same time, you're having to control your own horse. And he's got techniques for like doubling his horse back. So that next thing I know, he's got my arm wrapped around behind me and he's yanking me out of the saddle. And my feet are getting (laughs) caught in the stirrups and I'm about to go. And they keep telling me, fight back, fight back. I'm like, this feels like it's over. Like. Someone hand me a white towel. I gotta throw it in. And the old man with gold teeth mercilessly just lets me gently fall to the ground. It, and Everybody clapped. They applauded. They were very kind to to not utterly humiliate me. Uh, but it was a humbling experience. Thinking that here, you know, us cowboys are coming to show these guys a thing or two. Let's let's show you how to cowboy and. <laughs> Okay, let's teach you how to horse wrestle. (laughs) Put me in my place so fast. I mean the first they all ask you do you play the guitar they they've got it in their mind what a cowboy looks like it's the singing cowboy and that's that's a hollywood portrayal there and not that cowboys don't play the guitar but we don't lope along you know don't just ride our pony across the the desert where no grass grows why is a cowboy on the desert that makes no sense but he's singing a song and he's not sweating <laughs> it mean, just don't get me started on hollywood cowboy but that's their impression and I do. I play the guitar, and I sing, because we do. There's something about the cowboy life that lends itself to a cadence. Just the lonesome experience of of the life, you entertain yourself. So a cowboy tradition took root a long time ago. It's taken shape into cowboy Western music. And I'm a musical person, so I wanted to find out about their music too. So we do song swaps. They would play, they had these really cool two-string guitars called a Dombra, and I became obsessed with it. It's a real rhythmic uh, strumming type of of music. (laughs) ¶¶ there's all these set tunes and it's all based on rhythm and um, they will sing with some of the tunes but the story I was told is that the Dombra the music form was born one time when a performer was playing a musical representation of a deer hunt of, of the act of hunting a deer and so and on and then also of the horses running and the rhythm and the beats and it struck me just so similar to the to the fingerstyle guitar i had learned in argentina where they have a little bit of a, of a, well, a lot of a Spanish influence, and so seeing them strumming and striking this this little two-string guitar just instantaneously felt like I was in Argentina again. And they'd hand it to me, and you know, highly doubting my ability to play this thing, but the I didn't know how to really fret the thing, but I could get the strumming down. And they were delighted. They were absolutely delighted that that I could, you know, at least imitate a little bit what they were what they were performing with that music. So when I was getting ready to leave Kazakhstan at the end of my my grant, I was with Dalit's family, and they're a gift-giving culture. You can't out-gift a Kazakh. Like, they are going to out-gift you. So I'm a traveler, I didn't have a whole lot with me, but I wanted to leave something meaningful, especially for Dalit, though I had also become close with the rest of his family. And I'd been carrying along with me a cowboy hat, a black felt cowboy hat that I've worn on reporting trips to Mongolia, to Argentina. This cowboy hat's been with me for a long, long time. So I thought, I think I can give up this hat. I'll give this hat to Dalit. So I gave it, and it was a pretty powerful moment. You know, big hugs and the whole bit. But he said, how old are you, Ryan? And I told him my age at the time. And he said, "Okay, well, that doesn't matter. (laughs) He said, we have a custom that at certain ages, at certain birthdays, you're to shed your most meaningful belongings, to hand them, to give them to people who are important to you. Um, as a sign, as a signifier of entering a new phase of your life so that you can acquire new things that are important to you. So he said, you didn't even realize it. You're being as Kazakh as can be right now. <laughs> and I appreciated that. About a year later he was featured on a, on a TV show, um, Vice had made a TV show about Kazakhstan ranching and there was Dalit galloping across his ranch wearing that black felt hat. <laughs> it was pretty cool. When I went on this trip, my wife and my daughter stayed in Washington state and my wife just was terrified that I would die in a plane crash. So I made a promise to her that in all my travels, I would never take an airplane. I stayed true to that. And at the end of the trip, I added up all the mileage that I traveled by train and it equaled 25,000 miles, which is the exact circumference of the earth. It's like riding a train around the earth. And seeing the countryside by train, I mean, how romantic is that? The train holds a fascinating spot in in pretty much any culture because it just revolutionized their way of life. And I'm a big, big Russian literature fan. And so it brings to mind Anna Karenina just just these journeys people would make by train and by rail. And you see a side of Russia, holy cow, that is just so authentic. These birch tree forests that are just, they're haunting and hallowed. And all of a sudden in a gray landscape, you'll see a house painted orange. And some little old lady with a wool shawl around her neck, you know, shoveling out her front porch. Or somebody skiing through the woods to go do who knows what. Uh, and those were in the wintertime, and then in the summertime, you'd see people emerging from their banyas, their their sauna houses. And then you'd come to these these cities that appear out of nowhere in clear-cut forests that have, you know, run-down power plants around them. And it's, it's exactly what you would think a post-Soviet industrial city would look like. And then you cruise through an, an, a city that's been around for 800 years and see these, these gorgeous churches and these walls and seeing that country by rail felt like a good stand-in for what it would be like to see it by horse. And then with the rhythm, the tic-a-donk, tic-a-donk, of a rail car passing over the tracks just lulled me to sleep.
0: This week, Ryan T. Bell shared stories from his time as a Fulbright National Geographic fellow, teaching cowboy skills to eager people of the grass in Russia and Kazakhstan. Ryan's amazing work can be seen at RyanTBell.com. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out ECA.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. And hey, while you're there, why not leave us a nice review, huh? And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at, at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Did you know that photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found on our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233? Huge, very special thanks this week to Ryan for his passion and stories. My colleague Ana Maria Sinatine and I did the interview I edited it. Featured music was No No, No No's and Lullaby for Democracy by Dr. Turtle, Riders in the Sky, The Cowboy Legend by Vaughn Monroe and his orchestra, File Sharer's Lament by Blanket Music, The Dreamer's Instrumental by Josh Woodward, and huge special thanks to Ryan for two actual field recordings of his Kazakh cowboy comrades playing the Dombra. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Until next time.